is one of those Sundays where the sermon comes first. So we are in uh, a series through the Gospel of John, and today we come to chapter 3. Uh, so if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. We're talking about being born again. And so that was a great song to start with, uh, being changed, a great old gospel song. Thanks for picking that, Kathy. Well, they call it Born Again Beach. Born Again Beach. Here's how a British newspaper described the rebirth of a lost beach. An Irish beach that disappeared more than three decades ago has returned to an island off the County Mayo coast. The sand at uh, Doha, Akil Island, was washed away by storms in the 1980s, leaving only rocks and rock pools for decades. But after a freak recent high tide, hundreds of tons of sand were deposited around the area where the beach once stood, recreating the old 300-meter stretch of golden sand. Quite, a, quite an amazing thing. Local people are using the word miraculous to describe the beach's renewal. And an official for the Area Tourism Board explained why pilgrims, people, are flocking to the site. He said, we live in a dark world these days, so I think that is why there's been so much interest in Dora Beach since the story broke. For something like our beach to come back to life gives people hope. It's a good news story and one where nature has done something benign for a change. So there's the story of Born Again Beach in County Mayo in Ireland. Well, if a beach all the way in Ireland can have a born again experience, how about you and I? Today we come to a very beautiful explanation of the new birth that's found in our text in John chapter 3. It's a passage that children can understand and one that the world's greatest Bible students and scholars have never fully grasped. It contains the most well-known and least practiced verse in all of Scripture. It's a message not so much to be analyzed and dissected as it is to be received with joy. And so I want to just set the stage for a moment for you, with, if you will, for this unique encounter between Jesus and a member of a group that is highly critical of Jesus' message and methods. Throughout the Gospels, the people most opposed to Jesus came from a group known as the Pharisees. Many of Jesus' conflicts with the Pharisees were over the issues of him violating the Sabbath or breaking one of their ritualistic rules about cleansing or some other interpretation of Scripture. The Pharisees generally loved to engage in debate and they loved to question Jesus' actions and his teachings. The Pharisees, we could say, were the movers and the shakers of first century Judaism. They held positions of authority and power in that culture, and they were looked upon by the masses as those who had made it. If you were a Pharisee, you were right up there. They were the celebrities of the first century. Many faithful Jews strived to follow the teachings and the conduct that were, was modeled by the Pharisees. And their study and their implementation of Scripture focused strictly on matters of obedience. 
Not necessarily on attitudes, not on matters of the heart, but on doing the right thing. And while we could say that they were very strict about following or observing the commandments, Jesus was interested in the motive behind the commands. For the Pharisees, it was all about following the rules, checking off the boxes. But for Jesus, it had to do with our attitude, our heart, about the heart of following. Our key passage today is found in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And we're going to meet this man who was a typical Pharisee, a good man named Nicodemus. He came with respect and admiration to talk to Jesus as one rabbi to another, one teacher to another. Perhaps he was looking to, to bait, debate some fine point of the law, but the discussion that followed not only caught him by surprise, but it may have just changed his life forever. In that conversation, Jesus wanted Nicodemus to understand some key spiritual principles regarding what Jesus terms as the new birth. And so we're going to explore some of those principles this morning. And as we do, I want you to notice how Jesus taught by contrasting the prevailing viewpoint of Nicodemus and the other Pharisees with the real truth that he, Jesus, came to teach. So in the first two uh, verses of chapter 3 of this, uh, our, our apostle John, the author of our gospel, introduces us to Nicodemus. And we quickly discover this is no ordinary conversation. And Nicodemus is no ordinary person. Nicodemus, John explains, is a ruler of the Jews. That means that he is a member of the Jerusalem council called the Sanhedrin. This is a group of the 70 uh, most powerful men, uh, the religious brokers, the decision makers for the whole nation of Israel. In fact, in a few verses down, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. We could say that he was perhaps the leading theologian of the day, or at least one of the leading theologians of the day. And then I want you to notice that John says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Why at night? I suppose it might partly be because perhaps Nicodemus is a bit embarrassed. After all, he is a leading theologian of the day with the equivalent of a, of a PhD, and yet he's coming to talk to this itinerant preacher from Galilee, a blue-collar laborer who probably had very little formal education. Uh, and so this would be more then a little embarrassing for this guy to come and to have a theological discussion with Jesus. He also perhaps is a little frightened, and that's why he might show up at night. Jesus has been saying things and doing things that upset the religious establishment. That's Nicodemus' colleagues, his friends. And so perhaps that's why he goes at night. Perhaps he also goes at night because night affords him just the best opportunity for a leisurely conversation with Jesus. Away from the prying eyes and the pressing crowds of people that constantly followed Jesus during his ministry. And so Mr. Nicodemus shows up after dark and he sits down with Jesus and he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
You see, not all Pharisees were hard-hearted and opposed to Jesus. Nicodemus and perhaps a, a few of his colleagues had concluded from listening, from watching Jesus, that Jesus was, as, as Nicodemus termed it, a teacher who has come from God. That means that Nicodemus saw Jesus as a prophet. A prophet. They realized that the miracles that Jesus had been doing proved that he was a messenger from God. Now, certainly not all the, the Pharisees thought that. Some of them attributed Jesus' miracles to Satan, but not Nicodemus. And so that dark night, he came to Jesus to learn. He came to listen. He came to dialogue. And in verse 3, Jesus begins his reply to Nicodemus with a, a kind of an alert. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, whenever Jesus says that, it means something super important is coming. Now, everything Jesus has to say is important. But when he says, truly, truly, if you're using the old King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is something important. This statement signals that what uh, Nicodemus is about to hear from Jesus is going, and what Jesus is going to say is very serious because it comes straight from God. And so I want to read together the first part of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, verses 3 through 7. The words are on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Let's begin. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Amen. The word of God. And so, <clears throat> here, Jesus introduces what we're going to call the first key spiritual principle regarding the new birth. And that is that spiritual birth is more important than physical birth. Spiritual birth is more important than physical birth. In other words, it is not the lineage of your mother and father that gets you into heaven. It doesn't matter, Mr. Nicodemus, that you're a part of the group considered the most faithful of all Jews. Your heritage doesn't count. The passport to enter God's kingdom is not your ethnicity. It's not your education. It's not your behavior or even your measured faithfulness. In order to enter God's kingdom, Jesus says, truly, truly, really important, you must be born again. Spiritual birth is more important than physical birth. Now, this language seems to come out of the blue to Nicodemus as a, a man who would have been thoroughly acquainted with the Old Testament. And he was talking to, to a rabbi. Nicodemus was surely scrambling to think of a cross-reference somewhere in the Old Testament scriptures. Born again. There's nothing. It's not there. The Old Testament never uses a phrase like that. In fact, if this had been a, one of those finish the, the sentence exercises, uh, Jesus would have said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless, and Nicodemus would have answered, 
unless he's circumcised and obeys the laws of Moses. Ding, ding, ding. That would have been the right answer for a faithful Jew. But unless they're born again, where does that come from? Now, if you're a Jew who obeys God's law, what other birthright do you really need? Born again would have been a, a foreign expression. And I think, though, that Nicodemus was really listening very carefully and openly to Jesus because he doesn't get defensive. The obvious defensive answer would have been, well, why do I need to be born again, Jesus? I was born right the first time. I'm a Jew. But he doesn't go there. What he does ask in verse 4 is actually a much deeper question. He says, how can someone be born again when they're old? How does this work, Jesus? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, Nicodemus is not being silly here. He's not being sarcastic. That's not the kind of man he is. He wasn't a silly man. He was a thoughtful man, a deep thinker. And what he thought he heard Jesus say was that the only hope of entering the God's kingdom was a, a biological redo. And that, of course, in Nicodemus's thinking was impossible. And he was right. It is impossible. Now, in our culture, we use this phrase born again in a lot of different ways. We use it to indicate a, a fresh start, a new beginning, a remake, a second chance. We might say something like, oh, it's like the, the ducks or the beavers have been born again this year. The team is brand new. So perhaps if Jesus had been talking directly to us, he might have had, uh, laid the emphasis carefully to be sure that we would understand. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born a second time. Born again. Not metaphorically, but literally born a second time. Jesus, what are you saying? A person needs to be born again, Jesus said, in order to see the kingdom of God. Now, the Jews believed that the rewards of a righteous life, a life well-lived, would be to enter God's kingdom at the end of the age, at some far-off, undetermined time. And in fact, a lot of people that you know perhaps believe some variation of that idea. Someday, way down the road, if I do everything right, I might be in God's kingdom. Or surely I will be in God's kingdom. Maybe you believe that. Maybe you've been taught that. But if you must be born into it, into the kingdom, then you're in the kingdom of God the moment you're born. So it could happen before the end of time right? Even before you die, could someone see and enter the kingdom of God here and now? And the answer is yes. We can literally be born again. The spiritual new birth is not a metaphor, but an actual point in time in which we receive the privilege of entry into God's eternal kingdom. The shock here is that the only way anyone sees God's kingdom now or ever is to be born into it. And yet, no one who's been born once qualifies. So we've got a conundrum, don't we? 
Now, John prepared us for this in the opening verses of this gospel. If you remember back in chapter 1, when we were there in verses 12 and 13, here's what he wrote. But to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were what? Born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born again or spiritually born, to put it another way. You see, no one gets a passport into God's kingdom, but everyone needs a birth certificate. You got to have your birth certificate to show that you're born again. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus gives us some more new information. To be born again, he says, is to be born of the water and the spirit. Now this is even more strange than hearing that we have to be born a second time. This water and spirit language sounds kind of weird, right? Metaphorical, spiritual, uh, foreign sounding to us, but it shouldn't have sounded odd to Nicodemus at all. In fact, in verse 10, remember Jesus said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus? And yet you don't understand these things? In other words, how would this not be clear to someone with his deep training and responsibility to the Old Testament scriptures? So let me show you why this should have been very familiar to Mr. Nicodemus. In the prophecies recorded in the Old Testament, specifically we want to look at the prophecies in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet in chapter 36. This was written more than 500 years before Jesus came. So 500 years prior to this conversation that Nicodemus is having with Jesus, this prophecy came into play. And Nicodemus would have known this prophecy. He would have studied this prophecy. It would have been familiar to him. And God tells Israel through the prophet Ezekiel that after the terrible exile that's caused by their sin, that God would eventually restore them. And faithful Jews hung on to that truth. In fact, not long after the time of Ezekiel, about 100 years later, uh, Malachi was the last prophet. And then for 400 years, Israel had no prophets. It was a time of silence until a prophet came on the stage. Somebody that we met back in chapter 1, John the Baptist. The first prophet to come into the scene in 400 years. And so this should have awakened Nicodemus' understanding of what was going on here when Jesus said, you got to be born by the water and the Spirit. God tells them in Ezekiel that a day will come when he will show them the, the holiness of his great name, not only to Israel, but to all the nations. How? Well, he's going to do two things to show how great and holy his name is. In, in verse 36, or chapter 36 and verse 25, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to wash away their sins. Wash away their sins. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. You see, there's the water that Jesus is speaking of. God will cleanse sinful people. Which means we can't cleanse ourselves. God must provide the water. Now, Nicodemus was well aware of contemporary events going on around him as well well aware of Jesus and his ministry, and he would have been well aware of John the Baptist, who was preaching a baptism, 
an immersion, a washing of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Everybody had been going out to be baptized by him out in the wilderness. God's cleansing, washing was all over the news, if you will. If Nicodemus would have turned on CNN or Fox News or any of those, that would have been the story of the day. It was talked about. God's cleansing all over the news. And what's more, the Apostle John told us back in chapter 1 and verse 29 that when John the Baptist himself saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so there's the prophet in modern times looking back to the prophet of ancient times, tying it all together for the people that were there saying, Jesus is the one. And so one parent, if you will, in our second birth is water. The washing away of our sins through the blood of the Lamb of God. Leaving us clean, forgiven, reckoned righteous, despite how sinful we've been. Isn't that wonderful that God looks upon you if you're washed in the blood of the Lamb, that he looks upon you as clean and pure and forgiven? I don't know about all of you. I know about some of you, and I know about me. And I know I'm not clean and pure, but I know how God sees me. So one parent in our second birth is water. And then there's a second parent. God provides a new heart and a new spirit. A new heart and a new spirit. In the next two verses of Ezekiel's prophecy, in verses uh, 26 and 27, he says, and I, this is God speaking, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so God will give a new heart to replace the heart that is hardened and constantly rebels against God, and he will give a new spirit, new breath, new life to what formerly was dead. You see, this is what makes a person baby new, born again. So it gives them a goodness a Godwardness, a godliness. It comes supernaturally to us when we receive our new hearts, when we are born again. And so the other parent of our new birth is the new heart, the new breath of the Spirit of God. This is more, much more than just turning over a new leaf, much more than a fresh start. This is a recreation of a person Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, this is the power of the new birth that Jesus was revealing to Nicodemus for the first time. And it might even take us back to the creation of the world. Even to Adam. In Genesis 2-7 it says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
and the man became a living being. You see, for a person to be born again, only God can do that. To be born again from our mother's womb would do us no good at all. To be born again from our own activity, our own actions, doesn't work. But to be born of water and the Spirit brings us into the new life. Spiritual birth is far more important than physical birth. Well, next, Jesus wants to show Nicodemus a second key principle of the new birth. And that is that real life comes from the Spirit, not from the intellect or the will. In verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Now, the wind is a common symbol in Scripture for the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word spirit literally is pneuma or breath. And, and so this idea of the wind and breath and the spirit, they're all interrelated in Scripture. And Jesus, so Jesus says, uh, he, he, in a practical sense, he says to Nicodemus, nobody can control or predict the wind. It just blows everywhere, wherever it wants. You know, my wife and I were at the coast yesterday and we stopped at one of those overlooks to get out. Oh, the wind is just blowing like crazy. And wow, the wind, the wind does whatever it wants, doesn't it? The evidence... The evidence of our salvation is the indwelling of God's spirit, his breath, his wind. And that spirit enters our life when we are born again. And this happens when we submit to God and give up self-control. Now, the legalistic system of the Pharisees in which Nicodemus was entrenched in was designed to prevent them from giving up control. Rather, they wanted to control God. And so legalism says, if we do this, then God is obligated to do that. And it kind of becomes a transactional element between us and God. But we can't control God. We cannot even fully know God even right now. You know, God has chosen in his sovereignty to keep some things a mystery. Some things are not for us to know or some things are being revealed over time. And we need to be comfortable with that if we understand the work of God's spirit that goes wherever it wants. We cannot control God. God has chosen in his sovereignty to do things his way. It's not the womb that births us into God's kingdom. It's the wind. The wind. Jesus tells this overachiever, Nicodemus, that he can no more bring about his own new birth than he can summon the wind. And that, friends, is a message for you and I as well. We can strive after God based on knowledge and education, and behavior, and checking all the right boxes, doing all the right things. But here's what I want us to understand. All of that is on our terms, under our control, our intellect, our will. But real spiritual life must come from the Spirit. 
Jesus says the wind blows wherever it pleases. And it pleases the wind, the Spirit of God, to breathe life into all those who repent and want to be clean and who fully trust in Jesus alone to be born again. Now, not long after Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples, including the Apostle John, our author, and our scribe, they returned to Jerusalem. And they went there to wait, just as Jesus had instructed them to do. What were they waiting for? They didn't know. They did not know. But they went and they waited in faith. And they waited with expectancy. And what happened? I want you to listen to these words from Acts chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, that's 50 days after the death of Jesus. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing, what? Wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Pneuma, the Holy Breath the holy wind of God, and they began to speak in other tongues, in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. God's Spirit had arrived. And real life comes from the Spirit, not from the intellect, not from the will. And so these apostles, filled with the Spirit, with the wind, they begin to speak and to teach and to preach in languages that they had never learned. That was beyond their own intellect, beyond their own will. And then as a result, the crowds that are witnessing and listening to this amazing spirit-powered message of sin and guilt and shame and forgiveness and restoration, they react. And a little bit farther down in Acts chapter 2, we read the results of that. Beginning in verse 37. Now when they heard this, this preaching and teaching from the apostles, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we have to do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all, all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so, friends, do you see what's happening here? The message of the new birth, first given to Jesus, by Jesus to Nicodemus alone at night, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, it comes full circle. Three years later, Jesus has returned to heaven. He's passed the baton and his Holy Spirit to his disciples. And the new birth is announced by the apostles. Publicly this time. Not just to one man at night, but to thousands of men and women in the open of the daylight. Not just for Jews, but for all who are far off. Water. Spirit, forgiveness, the gift of God's Holy Spirit for each one who would choose to respond to his call. And that day, 
the scriptures tell us more than 3,000 responded and were baptized. Now, let's wrap this up by looking at the third key principle of the new birth. Jesus showed Nicodemus that salvation comes from relationship, not religion. Relationship, not religion. Let's read together Jesus' words to Nicodemus in verses 16 through 18. The words are on the screen. Um, Let's begin. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Amen. The Word of God. So brothers and sisters, faith in Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus, is the only means of salvation. We are not saved by membership in an organization. Salvation is not handed down from previous generations. You see, God has no grandchildren. He has only children who have been born of the water and the Spirit. In this text, Jesus uses a familiar historical reference from Israelite history to remind the teacher of Israel that salvation comes from relationship, not religion. God's command to Moses, the leader of the Jewish people, as recorded in in Numbers 21, was not that Moses kill the snakes surrounding the people, nor was Moses called to make medicine for their wounds. Nor was Moses called to try to protect the people from being bitten by the snakes. Instead, his instructions were that he lift up that bronze serpent and tell that snake-bitten crowd to look in faith. Not to look meant death, but to look up and believe meant salvation. And friends, it makes no logical, worldly sense, does it? It just doesn't make sense because faith requires us to trust and real faith involves risk. Jesus wanted Nicodemus to see that light will expose what has been unseen in the darkness. Listen to his concluding words from verses 19 through 21. Jesus said to Nicodemus, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works will be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, without the light of God's relationship plan of salvation, the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, were blindly trying to create their own system. They were stumbling through the darkness 
trying to work out their own religion, their own redemption. Their system was based entirely on works. And no matter how well-intentioned it was, in the light of Jesus, as Jesus came and illuminated everything, their legalism, their works, their self-made activities were now exposed as worthless and as darkness. And so it was for Nicodemus. Well, you know, at some point, this conversation came to an end. And Jesus let Nicodemus walk away. But it's interesting to me, that's not the end of the story. As we work our way through the Gospel of John, we're going to get to chapter 7, and we're going to find out that Nicodemus shows up right in the middle of John's Gospel, and there he is arguing with his fellow Pharisees to give Jesus a fair hearing. He becomes a defender of Jesus publicly. And then, Mr. Nicodemus shows up one more time at the end of the gospel. At the very end of John's gospel, there he is taking down Jesus' dead body from the cross and preparing it for burial. Nothing much more public than that. It took a while. It took a while for the things Jesus said and did to sink in, but eventually it seems they did. And while we don't know for sure if he was born again into the family of God, something must have happened to Nicodemus that day when he was confronted with a radically different system of redemption than the one that he had been trained and educated in. Something new took place. We know every day several large trucks full of discarded goods destined for the landfill arrive at a large warehouse in the eastern suburbs of Hamburg, Germany. Before being sorted through and categorized by a whole team of workers. But this is not a, a normal waste processing facility. While it is run by the city's garbage department, instead of destroying or disposing of all this throwaway stuff, this municipal team checks and, if necessary, repairs the things before putting them aside to sell to the public. It touts itself through its motto that says, for those who prefer used to new, used is the new sexy. Of course, that's in German. I don't, I don't know how to speak German. Or I would have said it in German. But it seems that some 400,000 objects are processed through two cavernous warehouses every year. Everything from well-worn teddy bears to refurbished laptops and kitchen counters. The facility contracts with technicians and craftsmen who ensure that all the used furniture is given a thorough beautification and all the electronics will be sold with a one-year money-back warranty. Launched in 2001, they have gone from having one full-time employee to a crew of more than 70 full-time employees and from being a nonprofit to bringing in hundreds of thousands of euros per year in profit. Mr. Roman Hagentroth, the operations manager, said, these things are useful. They really aren't rubbish. We are trying to stop throwaway culture and wastefulness. There's so much value in what we treat like trash. Love that story. Because friends, in God's economy, 
The people that the world considers broken and useless and trash can be reclaimed and restored by God, the master craftsman. The filthy is washed clean and the worn out becomes born again. You see, that's God's plan for you and for me and for all who would desire to be born again. Now, we may have been taught that if we just learn enough about the Bible, that we will in the in process be transformed. Well, now, while learning God's word is very important, salvation is not merely about our knowledge. It is a radical act of faith that leads to the very spirit of God coming to dwell in our spirit. We may have growing up believing that the way to heaven is by keeping all the rules. The more rules, the better. But that's not true. The way to heaven is by experiencing God's grace and mercy more fully. We may have come to believe that by creating our own system or subscribing to someone else's system of rules that we are honoring God. But often we're not. We're only stumbling in the darkness we may have given intellectual assent to the idea that salvation is by grace through faith, but in our lifestyle, we are crippled by legalism or self-defined righteousness. And if that's the case, then we need, brothers and sisters, to find the true freedom that only Jesus can provide through his Holy Spirit, that he longs to give to you and to me. And so my prayer for each of us today is that we might be made new, born again through experiencing a true relationship with our Heavenly Father, with His Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are...